Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And we'll continue there tonight. Um, This section of Scripture uh, we've been looking at in Colossians chapter 2 over the last couple of lessons, um, we've seen a significant focus on the fact that Christians are in Christ. And not in a religious club that talks about Jesus, and not in a group of people who are trying hard to be recognized by Jesus, not in a group of people who are trying hard to make Jesus want to keep us around, but the fact that we are in Christ. And um, Paul is not, he hasn't been explaining the things that I just mentioned. He's been explaining and reminding the Colossian believers, and of course, by extension, us, of the absolute truth of their relationship with Jesus. Uh, In verse 6, he indicated, by faith they are in Christ and walk in Christ. And verse 7, they are commanded to be uh, rooted and built up in him. In verse 8, they're warned about their minds being taken captive by the deception of worldly philosophy and not having their minds captive by him. Why? Verse 9, he says, because in, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And verse 10, it is in him that Christians have been filled or made complete because he is the head over all rule and authority. In him, in him, in him, in him, in him. Over and over again, we see uh, this. So I don't know about you, but I sense a pattern emerging in what Paul is writing. And really, it's an encouragement to to believers, Um, but not an encouragement in self, right? This is not about self-satisfaction, self-worth, self-appreciation. As we can see, the focus here is him, and that's counterintuitive to our culture, right? We're all about self, and we're taught to love self, pursue self, find self, um, all those kinds of things. The Christian, however knows that this is a lie. This is a lie from the world. It's so easy for us to focus on self. We don't have to be taught to focus on self. Uh, we, have to, we have to learn to die to self. Um, and what we find out about self is that self is dead in trespasses and sins. As Paul's been writing about, and I'll continue to write about, self is lost without hope in the world and for eternity unless we are in him. Um, And so Paul's encouraging them in their faith in Christ. He's encouraging them with the truth about their relationship with Christ. The Christian has come to know, all of us as Christians have come to know by the grace of God that um, what we truly have need of is Christ. And where we look is to Christ because all satisfaction is in him. All worth is in him. All appreciation is in him. Uh, that we are only truly alive if we are in him. So this is a tremendous encouragement. Uh, even in the midst of his dealing with false teaching and the things that the church is coming against the believers in the church, the fact that he addresses that teaching and brings out the truth is so encouraging for them, and it should be very encouraging to us because we can hear what's false, we can cast that out, but then be anchored, be rooted and built up in the truth. Um, 
And that's what Paul is talking about, and that's what he continues to talk about in this passage as we'll look uh, further into the text of chapter 2. And it's good for us to be reminded of these truths about who Christ is, what he's done for his own people. And so let's listen for that as we read our text for tonight, which is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be here tonight, to gather together, sing praises to you, Lord, to open up your word and see the words that are not only a a warning to us, a caution to us, um, but Lord, a reminder to us of your powerful work through your Son. And we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that you have given us your word so that we can know more and more about you all the time. We're so grateful for your Holy Spirit that teaches us. Um, We're so grateful for our salvation that is found in Christ and not in our own righteous deeds, Lord, which don't exist. And Father, we thank you for the, the perfect life lived through Christ and for his death and burial, and resurrection for us, Lord. We're so grateful for your grace and your mercy. We want to praise you. We want to honor you, Lord, as you teach us, as we live our lives. May we bring glory to your name, because your name is holy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we see um, right away that we're still on the subject, again, of being in Christ, as Paul's first words here in our section for tonight indicate. He says, in him also. Okay, so he's, he's continuing with these in him statements that he's been making. Um, that keeps us in the same line of thinking that we've already been in and moves us um, on to the next subject of, this, of being in him, which is circumcision. He brings up circumcision here. And notice right away that Paul... Um, is writing to them in the past tense, and that is he's, he's making a statement about them regarding circumcision that is that in him also you were circumcised. They have already been circumcised. It's already taken place. That's important for us to know. It's especially interesting here because the bulk of the people that Paul was writing to would be Gentiles and not Jews. So question then is, why is that significant? Why is it significant that he's bringing up circumcision to a group of Gentiles? What was that? Because they're not circumcised, right, in the sense of the Jewish people and their obedience to God's law in in circumcision, right? They 
the Jews practiced circumcision, not the Gentiles. But here Paul is telling them they have been circumcised. It's already taken place. He's stating a fact. This is already a reality for them, okay, this, this circumcision that he's talking about. And, of course, he's not talking about physical circumcision. But Paul is talking about, a spirit, what he's talking about here is spiritual. It's in the spiritual sense. And we look at the rest of verse 11 to come to that understanding. If we look at that again, Colossians 2.11, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the fact that Paul has to address the subject of circumcision with this church, with this group of Gentile believers, indicates that someone was teaching them some form of adherence to the practice of circumcision. He had to address this. Maybe the false uh, teaching of the Judaizers had made its way to the Colossian congregation. You know, they taught that um, to be saved, one had to not only believe in Christ, but also be physically circumcised. It's Christ plus this act of circumcision, this obedience to the law. And that is a false teaching. Uh, Paul completely put to rest when he addressed the Galatians rather sharply. If you want to turn there with me, Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4, I'm going to look at that for a minute here. The the Galatians, they had begun to to embrace this teaching that Paul rebukes rebukes them for. And and he's making clear that to trust in in law-keeping, the law-keeping act of circumcision in particular, actually cuts you off from the benefits of Christ. You you no longer have the benefit of Christ offered to you. In Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4, it says, um, Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That doesn't sound good. (laughs) The thought of a people who want to be attached to Christ, being told that if you do this, you are severed from Christ. If I heard that said to me by someone like Paul, uh, I would be terrified. <laughs> uh, that would, I would want to run from whatever it was I was clinging to um, because we don't want to be severed from Christ. We don't, want to, we don't want Christ to be of no advantage to us, right? But to cling to works of the law to save you puts you in that camp. It puts a person in that camp. Um, And so he says, if that's you, you are severed from Christ. Why do you think that these Christians, or any Christians maybe, would be susceptible to this false teaching? Why do you think that is? I, I asked a similar question last week about why Christians would be susceptible to worldly philosophy. Why do you think it is? What are some reasons why people would be susceptible to this kind of false teaching? Okay, ignorance, right? Ignorance of the Word of God that makes this clear. What what else? Pride. Right. You guys agree with that? We, as human beings, we tend to want 
to earn things on our own. We want to be able to say, look what I did, right? And that is form. And God specifically does salvation differently. And the Bible tells us in particular, so that no one can boast. Because, of course, God knows human beings. He knows that's the first thing we would do is boast. Look what I did, right? And you see this whole group of people standing before God um, that, that uh, we see listed out in Matthew where that's what they're doing. You know, they're, they're saying to him, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? They list all their, their works. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, we would be susceptible because we're used to things that are conditional. That's, that's a good point. Uh, we're, we're used to that even in relationships, right? We like someone if they meet our expectations or if they do the things that, uh, that appeal to us. If they don't, we tend to not want to be around that person or dislike that person. Um, we, we do things conditionally a lot. Um, and, I, and I think you know, the pride issue and the ignorance of Scripture issue are probably the number one reasons why uh, people would be susceptible to this kind of teaching. And it's not just about circumcision. I mean, you name the work, the you-must-do-this-to-be-saved thing, um, and that fits into this, this category. For some reason, we want to have some part to play in our salvation. Um, so, people don't know what uh, Christ says because we don't know the Word of God, and we're not able to, when we are taught something like that, we're not able to compare that to the truth and, and then reject that false teaching. Uh, and Paul couldn't have made it more clear about the lack of value, in particular, in circumcision for salvation. And that, that was his target there in the Galatian passage. Um, so, so to believe that, he said, severs a person from Christ. They're not saved. They cannot be saved because they have rejected the sufficient work of Christ on the cross for their salvation. They're clinging to their own deeds to save them. So if, if the Judaizers were the ones bringing that teaching in there, that's what they would be teaching. If not the Judaizers uh, teaching salvation by Christ plus circumcision, then it could have been someone teaching some form of practicing the physical act of circumcision, maybe to, to please God or to keep a right relationship with Him. Either way, um, I, Paul had to address whatever confusion there was. Okay, he, he had to bring this subject up. He had to write to them about this. And even though the physical act of circumcision was commanded by God, it was never really about the physical act uh, of circumcision, but a picture of what really needs to happen, a picture of what needs to happen in, within the heart, within a person's heart. And Christ fulfilled this and accomplishes, accomplishes this in the hearts of believers. Um, we also don't have to wait until we get to the New Testament to find that out, uh, that it's, it's about the heart, right? In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Okay? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Uh, that's early on in the scriptures that we see that it's not about this physical act. Physical circumcision was commanded by God. It was a 
a shadow of the real thing, right? We'll, we'll see later that Paul addresses other, other things that are done away with because um, Christ is the real thing, okay? And also look at how Paul handles this um, if you'll turn to Romans 2. Look how uh, Paul handles this um, with a, a, his distinction between Jews and Gentiles regarding what circumcision really is. In Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 28. <clears throat> Romans 2, 25 through 28. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then, who, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is, verse 29 also, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, so are there things about that particular passage that are confusing or that you have found confusing? Anyone, is there something in there that's confusing? And another question goes with that, and maybe we'll, we'll get to if there's any confusion, is what does this teach about obedience to the law? We can't do it, right? What else? What if, what if I'm going to try to do it? If you break one, you break them all. Yeah, yeah, he's making that clear. Um, he says in 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. He's not saying that it's possible for us to obey the law. We know it's not. Christ is the only one that could do that. He's saying it's, it's of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And do we break the law? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're, we learn there that, that if, if this is a way a person says, I'm going to be saved by keeping the law, by doing all these things perfectly, well, what the Bible teaches is then you better do it all perfectly, Right? You're required to keep it all perfectly, always, without ever sinning, even in the smallest way, even once, ever. And it's not possible. We know that it's not possible. That's why Christ had to come. He had to live that perfect life. He had to live in obedience to all the law so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for us. He lived a life that we could not live. Um, so we, we see clearly that uh, circumcision is of value if, there's a big if there, if you obey the law, but we don't, right? So this is a, a severe warning to those who would want to say they're saved by, by keeping the law. And it really is, it's an indictment against anyone regarding any aspect of trying to earn salvation by law keeping, whether it's circumcision or not, whether it's circumcision or something else. You name the thing that people try to do to be made right with God, and it's the same Thing. There's no value to that. You're, you're severed from Christ by trying to do that. 
The point is, only Christ could ever live that way, a perfect life. So this is uh, a circumcision that God does. Okay? Our, our text says it's a circumcision made without hands. That tells us, if, if someone's hearing that and they're thinking, uh, physical circumcision that a priest does to someone else, uh, then this disregards that and says, no, it's not done by hands. This is a spiritual thing. Okay? He gets to the answer. How? How is that done? Look at, uh, at our verses there and back in Colossians. By putting off the body of the flesh. How? By the circumcision of Christ. Now the word used for circumcision means to cut something off or cut something away. Right? And even beyond that, to, it's, it's really also dealing with the removal of the thing cut off. Okay? So Paul's reference here to the body of the flesh is a reference to the old self, the old sin nature uh, that we all were controlled by before salvation. We all lived under that. Um, and so this is a, a cutting away of that. It's, a, it's doing away with that. It's cutting it off. It's removing it. Um, that's what is being dealt with here. The physical act um, of circumcision, cutting off of the male foreskin, which really represented the passing on of the sin nature. Right? It's, this piece of flesh is specifically targeted um, as the thing that's passing this on. Um, and so this idea of putting off is very targeted. Our spiritual circumcision meant the putting off of the old person. Okay? Uh, this really is a, a stripping away, a casting off one commentator said, the imagery is that of discarding or being uh, divested of a piece of filthy clothing. So, in the spiritual sense, Christ is the one doing the cutting, and the target is the heart, right? which represents the center of man. It's where sin comes from within. Both the physical and the spiritual act um, targeted the beginning point. It targeted the sin. But only the spiritual act of circumcision by Christ takes care of the problem. It's only that that deals with it once and for all. And the Jews were known collectively as the circumcision. Okay? They, everyone knew this is what they practiced. They were known as the circumcision. But according to Paul, they really were not the circumcision. In Philippians 3.3, 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that could, of course, include some believing Jews, right? But it can also include Gentiles. Okay? Those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus put no confidence in the flesh, meaning they put all their confidence in Christ, all their confidence in the work of Christ to save them. Nothing that they do, and in particular, circumcision. And again, this is called here in our text, the circumcision of Christ. This is how it's done by Christ. Paul is giving the glory to God, not man's act of law-keeping. Going on, Paul makes clear that this is all a work of God on behalf of sinners. Look at verse 12 with me. 
in Colossians 2. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so here we'll continue to see more of the same language, this kind of language of in him or with him, keeping our attention on Jesus. Okay, anybody continuing to hear this that might be thinking, well, well, I did this or, yeah, but what about I this? No, in him, him. It's continually putting our focus on Christ. And some take these words and make baptism a requirement for salvation, right? Just like they do with the previous subject of circumcision. Uh, but we must understand that these are both Yes, they are both physical acts, but they both point to a spiritual reality, right? It's, it's beyond those things. It is true that physical baptism is a command from God, is it not? We see that in the Scripture. But it's not for salvation, right? It doesn't bring about our salvation. It's a picture of the inner reality, right? This reality of the fact that a person's heart has been circumcised by Christ, a baptism identifies the person with Christ publicly. It pictures a person's participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. Look over with me, if you would, Romans chapter 6, and see what Paul says there. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, this is not really talking about, really, it's not really talking about the physical act of water baptism even here, but what it pictures. Um, the word for baptize means immerse, right? So we are, what we're talking about here is that we are immersed into the death of Christ. Um, this is about the reality of our union with Christ. Therefore, when a pastor, if you've seen baptisms, you know that the pastor, they baptize someone, um, and they, they indicate there that they are buried with Christ in baptism, and they're raised to what? To walk in newness of life. So, well, how do we know this is a spiritual thing? Well, my question would be, which one of you, when you were baptized, was actually buried? And have you, somebody dug a hole and threw you in it? No, we, we, don't, we don't do that. Paul, he's writing about here is not about being actually buried in the ground or put in a tomb with Christ. Um, but it's what is pictured by this. Um, it's not even really about focusing on baptism here. We can easily read this and sort of spend all of our time focused on baptism and what baptism is and what baptism does. Um, um, but really the focus is what it took for us to be circumcised by Christ and to be immersed into Christ. This is a spiritual reality for the Christian. Well, what is the true focus here? Paul points us to it with his next words, if we look back at our passage. 
He says we are also raised with him, and here's what is the real focus for us as Christians. This is all done, he says, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's where our focus needs to be. Yes, we can talk about circumcision, we can talk about baptism and what they are. That's not really what he's getting at. What he's getting at here is what is accomplished by the powerful working of God. That's, that's how we're saved, by the powerful working of God. Let, let's look over at 1 Corinthians, if you would. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now look at verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> Paul's dealing here with some divisions in the church, and he's getting after them about they say they follow Paul or Apollos. It's that whole section. And verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This isn't to diminish baptism. He's not diminishing baptism here but he's wanting people to focus in on what's important. The point is not is to not diminish the work of Christ on the cross. He doesn't want that to be diminished. And that's also what Paul is bringing into focus for the Colossians. Okay, he's got a whole, what we just read there is a whole thing about um, whether he baptized someone or not or how many people he baptized. And he wants to make sure that people know this is not about that. It's about the gospel, because we don't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Now, we can't actually empty the cross of Christ of its power, right? Um, but if, if we're making the message about something other than the cross, then that message, the message of the gospel is not reaching people. We're reaching them with something else, okay? So he wants the focus, there in Corinthians and for the Colossians, he wants the focus to be on Christ, that's why um, it's not about uh, faith that God will help us work through our sins or help us get better um, at sinning less. He will do those things. This is about the absolute understanding, the trust, the confidence that the powerful working of God is sufficient to deal with your sin and with my sin. Right? To cancel it, to remove it from our lives. That's what it's about, putting the focus on that. We want to be reminded of that. And what are we also seeing described here in these verses? Uh, really, the, the new birth we see in these verses. This is what the prophet Ezekiel described. If you turn there with me in Ezekiel into chapter 36, um, look at a passage there, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. 
So as I read these, think about what Ezekiel is saying. He's speaking for God here, okay? Think about what he's saying, and, and, and if you can tell me from these verses what you did to accomplish your new birth. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what do you guys think? Where do you see in there what you're, how you participated in, in accomplishing your new birth? Nowhere. Right? Nothing. It's, it's, again, the powerful working of God. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will, I will put within you, and I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Thank God that he does that work, right? We would be remaining dead in our trespasses and sins if God did not do this powerful work in the lives of sinners. And stay in that Ezekiel passage with me for a minute because I have another question. Why does God do it this way? What is God really concerned about when he saves people? What do you think? His glory. Absolutely. All right, look at right there in that Ezekiel 36 passage, back up to verses 22 and 23. This is before we, he says what he said in what we just read. Before that, he says, Therefore, say to the household of Israel, God telling him what to say, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Why does he do it that way? For his own glory. That his name will be seen as holy. All we do is profane His name. He, he is restoring it in the minds of men by saving sinful people like you and me. But does the fact that men profane His name mean He is actually diminished in some way? No. The idea here is that it's, it's really it's only in the minds of men that God is thought of as nothing. That God is thought to not exist. It doesn't mean he actually doesn't exist. But in the minds of men, he doesn't exist. In the minds of men, he's not worthy of praise. He's not worthy of worship. But God fixes all the thinking of men in the end. And that's the point of that. Whether people are saved or not, everyone will finally acknowledge him for who he is. 
It's a wonderful thing. You know, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, very familiar passages, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everyone. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that? It's a confession of who God is, who Christ is. Why? To his own glory. And it, it's literally everyone. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess it. So God says to Ezekiel, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And that's what he means there. In their eyes, in their minds. All the doubters, all the things they, uh, the ways they try to discredit God or say God doesn't exist, that'll all go away. And for many people, it'll be too late, but they will still acknowledge it because it's true. The fact that men don't acknowledge it doesn't make it not true. Nobody diminishes God. Nobody can diminish God. They can try to with their words. They can believe that he's nothing, but that doesn't make it so. So Why do you and I need to spend time studying this? Why do we need to be reminded again that Baptism doesn't save us. Men don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Why is that? Why do we need to keep being reminded of these things? Okay, we're human. We forget. We're very forgetful. That's true. We get prideful. Yeah. Isn't that true? I mean, we can know that these things are true, profess that they're true, and go about living our lives and eventually start believing our own press, right? Believing the things that people say about us. Oh, you're, you're this, you're that, you're so kind, you're this. And maybe, you know, in a, in a human sense, we are. But we, start to, we can start to believe those things in pride and forget our condition before Christ saved us and the fact that we need him desperately. So yeah, we, we need to be reminded of these things. We need, uh, we need to be reminded of the power of God that accomplished this in our lives. If you are a Christian, it's not because of what you did. It's because the power of God accomplished that in your life. Uh, he does that. He saves all of his people. Um, he's the one who seeks and saves the lost. We can cease from striving, and we can rest in Him. We can walk rooted and built up in Him. This is all about Him and being in Him. Speaking of the new birth, we see Paul very specifically going there in verse 13 of our text. He writes clearly about their, the people's previous condition before salvation and what state they are in now because of the powerful working of God. In Colossians 2.13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Remember that he addressed the subject of their need for spiritual circumcision earlier. And here he goes back to that by pointing out that they were in that state prior to God working in their lives. Again, for a Christian to hear this is an encouragement. This is about what the Christian was. If you are a Christian, you can look back and remember what you were 
you can see the transformation in your life. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he says here that God has made us alive together with him. Why do we need to be made alive? It's a simple answer. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. God didn't say we were sick and send a doctor. No offense, John. He said we were dead. So he sent a Savior, the only Savior who can make us alive. So that's our mindset, right? Paul says to the Romans, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 6.11, to the Corinthians, he said, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, and to the Ephesians, he said, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead, in our trespasses. It's amazing. As you walk through this Christian life, why is it important that you remember um, that you were dead to sin, or that you are now dead to sin? Why is it important to remember that you are dead to sin and have been made alive to Christ? Why do we need to remember that? Okay, yeah. It shows our reliance on him, right? We depend on God. Absolutely. And that's, there's an aspect of assurance in that, right? Or be reminded of that. That there is assurance in what God has done in the powerful working of God in our lives. And also because circumstances of life can try to convince us otherwise, right? The hardships of life can try to convince us that we are not saved. It can convince, try to convince us that I need to work harder to please God, to somehow gain favor with God. We need to come back and rest in the powerful working of God in our lives for salvation because we are in Christ. And we'll, when we come back, we'll continue in verse 13 because um, we haven't really got through everything in verse 13. And we'll look beyond that next week. Um, there's still more to get out of this text and, and understand what God did in canceling our sin and removing that sin from us, all that he did through his son there, and what that accomplished um, against the um, rulers and authorities and putting them to shame. We won't talk about that next time. So let's close in prayer tonight, and then we'll have a time uh, to visit together and have Q&A. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. We thank you for this reminder. As we've been going through this book, we've been reminded over and over and over again of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Lord, of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the powerful working that you did through Christ on the cross. I pray, Lord, that that will always be our focus, that we would daily depend upon you for every aspect of our lives. Lord, humble us. Help us not to walk proudly through this life, 
Help us, Lord, if we're going to boast, to boast in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.